Do you invest your money strictly in stocks and bonds? If so, it's time to change that. Welcome to Approach Investing Differently with me, Stephen Rosen from Hightower Bethesda. I've been advising clients for over 20 years on how to invest in alternative investments, and I'll explain why you should dedicate a percentage of your investable assets to hedge funds, private equity, and real estate in order to maximize returns and create a more efficient investment portfolio. Now, on to the show. Private equity remains front and center in this discussion with Stephen Rosen. Now, Stephen previously offered an overview of the investment strategy, but this time he takes a deeper dive. I'm Patrice Sikora. So, Stephen, where would you like to start? Well, let's not assume that everybody listens to all of our podcasts. Every podcast. Wait a minute. Come on. Listen, they should be, but I can't guarantee it. So for those who are new and just kind of hopped into what was going to be, what is going to be a more detailed conversation on private equity, uh, we'll do a little recap for what private equity is and why we use it. And so the prominent reason why we use it is because it's a great way to invest in companies uh, to capture the vast majority of their growth. Um, there's different stages that were exactly what we're going to get into in this podcast, as far as where along the life cycle of a company you can invest. But the whole notion behind it is really to invest with business owners and alongside business owners uh, who are looking to grow their companies in a meaningful fashion. And really the nice thing about private equity is that these people are focused more on the long-term results of the company and the value-driven uh, results of the company rather than what a lot of times we see in the publicly traded equity markets where they're trying to make sure they meet a specific revenue goal that's been put out by the company or put out by analysts and as well as earnings expectations um, that the market is looking at because the market, unfortunately, uh, is very short-sighted. The, pu- the, the publicly traded markets, I say, are very short-sighted. And they're traditionally looking at what have you done for me lately, not what you're going to do for me in the future. And so that's one of the reasons why we like private equity, because it really is a focus on the long-term growth of the company. These companies are not being valued on a day-to-day basis like public equity markets are. Um, There's no kind of euphoric discount or premium that happens in a short term for any of these companies. These companies um, may get valued in a in maybe a higher than normal fashion because of some of their uh, potential gains, but we're not going to see the massive volatility up or down that we see in the publicly traded market. So pretty much we like the fact that you're dealing with business owners who have a long-term future, a long-term outlook on their companies, uh, rather than kind of the short-term nature that we see in the publicly traded markets. And again, like we talked about in the last episode, uh, the fact that companies are staying private for so much longer is really providing a tremendous growth opportunity for investors along all of the different stages, depending upon the amount of risk that you're looking to take. I like the analogy you made in the last podcast, that private equity is like an island to itself, uh, away from all the the volatility of the indexes and everybody's kind of mishmashing around and, and looking for day you know numbers every day every day. I think that's the general thesis behind alternatives in general, which is why we happen to like them so much. They really do sit on an island of the, of their own. It's not to say that they're not affected by what goes on around them Mm -hmm. or by what is going on in the general economy, they most certainly are. There's no doubt about it. There is definitely some contagion that occurs when things are going bad. Uh, But because of the 
philosophies that revolve around the alternative investments, uh, the long-term approach. You don't necessarily have what maybe we would call bad decision-making uh, processes along the way. And again, the fact that these things are not valued on a day-to-day basis does help smooth out the bumps. We have seen over the years, uh, you know, you have one month that's up 9% for the equity markets and one month that's down 10%. Okay. Well, maybe you ended up getting to the same exact spot, which was basically zero in a given quarter. But look, the angst and volatility that you experienced to get there. At the end of the day, that private equity investment didn't go up one month. It didn't go down one month. If you talk to business owners, they don't look at things in that short time frame, And the markets don't look at things. At best, they're valued on a quarterly basis, and it smooths out and takes away some of the noise. So they are affected. I don't want to misrepresent that they don't get affected by what goes on in the economy. Um, they don't get real estate does get affected by what goes on with interest rates as well as the economy. Private equity does get uh, affected by valuations that are placed on varying companies, both public and private. But at the end of the day, the, those bumps are much, much, much smoother, and they do not um, affect us dramatically as much as you do sitting in publicly traded markets. All right. Tell me about the different stages of private equity investing. Great. So there's probably, let's call it, you know, four larger stages of private equity. Um, and, and I'll discuss them kind of ranging from the most aggressive uh, to the more conservative. And, and keep in mind that within each of these different sort of stages um, are probably stages within them. So uh, keep in mind that this is kind of, we're, we're not going to be ground level. We'll try to stay five to 10,000 feet. Um, and for anybody who's got you know future questions and interest, they can always reach out to us and we'll get to that at the end of the show. Um, but for starters, seed capital is really one of the earlier stages of private equity investment. Um, and generally speaking with seed capital, you have kind of passed what we would all maybe call the friends and family path which is somebody's got an idea, they want to kind of do something with it. Uh, they'll put some of their own money into it. They'll kind of go around to their friends and family hat in hand and say, hey, this is a business that we're trying to put together. Um, usually gets off, you know, assuming it gets off the ground, it's kind of become stable, um, grows a little bit. There's a business model there. They're going to look for what they call seed capital. And this capital is is definitely very, very what we call early stage. Um, these are people who are looking for companies that are very new, very fast growing, uh, capitalizing a great idea, um, and they'll provide capital for these individuals to help them grow, and they'll help them grow exponentially. And so the concept there at Seed Capital is you're looking for you know really outsized returns, but with that comes risk because at the end of the day. There's a lot of companies that get seed capital and just go nowhere. And they're, th th that's for varying reasons. That's because maybe the idea isn't as great as they thought it could be. Uh, maybe the owners of the business are not really the greatest operators of businesses. Sometimes ideas are fantastic, but you can't really execute on them. Um, sometimes it's economics. Economies go into tailspins and you know companies that don't have um, revenue or don't have income. Uh, and earnings to support their growth and are reliant upon investors to help them stay afloat. You know, sometimes people just eventually pull the plug on that. Well, when it comes to seed capital, do these folks, these investors, do they necessarily want input into the operation of the business? 
So it depends upon um, who you're going to for seed capital. And this is also for all stages. Okay. Some companies are going to want to have some input. Um, Sometimes in many instances, business owners are choosing who they want to invest in their company because of their ability to add input. You're dealing in many instances with companies with tremendous amounts of resources, clearly tremendous amounts of experience. Sometimes you're, you know, looking for, if you're a technology company, you probably want to look for private investors who, uh, number one, have experience investing in the technology space. Number two, relationships in the technology space that can help um, provide tons of experience, potentially could help in growing whatever the business is, could potentially help in product sales, depending upon what it is. So yeah, so who is investing is very important. And in certain instances, you're going to have investors that are going to going to take a, an active role. And sometimes you're going to have investors that are going to take a passive role. And, and that also depends upon where you are as far as the stage is concerned um, as to you know, how much active versus passive management gets put in and also how many, how much of the investment is one group making. Mm-hmm. You know, if you end up raising capital from a lot of different people in small to medium amounts, no one's really going to have a per se, a massive input per se. They won't have a lot of control. Or if you go to, you know, let's call it an anchor tenant, so to speak, in the world of private equity, and you have a, a large investor, um, yeah, they may you know, want, want to have some say in it. And But many times you, you want them to have that, that say. Okay. All right. So that's seed capital. Is there anything else yeah. on that or do we move on? No, I think that's good. I mean, the key to understanding seed capital is it's very early, um, very risky. Um, I will tell you, it's something that we don't play in. Okay. That's for starters. So we probably shouldn't even spend too much time on it. We are generally not looking at investors and companies um, who are doing seed capital. It's a, again, we've kind of told this out to clients and, and prospects and anyone who's listening. We utilize all these alternatives um, to get some good non-correlating returns. We want to have good returns, but we're, we're trying to avoid blowups wherever possible. Um, those are things that are very, very difficult to recover from. And so we really are looking at things on a risk-reward basis. So that takes us to venture. And venture capital, to be honest, is probably the earliest that we will participate in. Um, here you generally have, and, and again, look, everyone's definitions of these categories, you know, has a tendency to vary a little bit. Um, in general, for us, venture capital is companies who, you know, clearly are are are, are well seated, so to speak. Um, they definitely have um some business. They're definitely early on. Um, but again, they've got some good backing. Um, they've got good people now who are looking to take a shot on them. You have good solid revenue. Um, generally speaking, most of these companies you look at don't really have earnings. Uh, if they had earnings, they could reinvest that money back into the business. Uh, so they wouldn't necessarily need to get private equity capital. But venture is definitely a little bit on the earlier side. We're looking for good solid returns. But again, what you're always looking at in all of these instances is my probabilities of zero. Because that's the truth. I mean, mm-hmm. it, in private equity, this is private equity is very different than how we look at real estate. Okay, real estate, you're not going to get a zero. It'd be very, very difficult for anything that we do in real estate to get a zero because you always have an asset. Okay. Right. And we'll talk about private credit on, a, on in our next episode, but also private credit 
if you do it right, very hard to have a zero um, because usually there are some assets that a company has. And if you're a debt holder, you get access to, to that debt. On the private equity side, uh, as you're looking at seed and venture, um, and even the next one we'll talk about is growth capital, there are companies who just don't work out. And generally speaking, when they don't get worked out, they usually get sold for you know cents on the dollar sometimes. Um, if there's an idea, but you just have awful operators, okay? So sometimes the companies will get sold, um, purchased by strategic, uh, you know, a strategic buyer who likes the concept and, and they can kind of mesh it into what they do. Uh, or many times they just don't work and they become zeros. And we see it. And by the way, good funds have zeros. You don't invest in venture capital or any private equity without the notion that you could have a zero. And I will tell you that some of our best funds, if there's, you know, 15 or 20 companies that they invest in, probably going to have 10% of those companies are going to be zeros. Really? That's uh-huh. Oh, yeah. Because keep in mind, you're in, in any kind of private equity vehicle, uh, you're generally going to have maybe you know 10% of the companies who are going to be zeros. Uh, you'll probably maybe have 20 companies that are going to have exponential returns. So they clearly make up for the losses. And then you're going to have a lot of, you know, doubles, triples, and home runs. And that's just kind of the makeup. So there's a volatility there. And it is one of the reasons why when we talk to clients about private equity in particular, um, vintage, okay? Vintage is basically the year in which you start a fund. And when we take a look at private equity, and, and I think private equity matters a little bit more than real estate, but private equity vintage is very important because and diversification of vintage is very, very important. So the biggest risks you can generally take in private equity markets, or the risks that you take are, you know, manager risk. You know, who's who, who's picking and choosing the companies? Are they good at what they do? What's their expertise? Um, and then you have vintage risk. And vintage risk is the year in which you decide to participate in a particular fund. And one of the things we like to make sure that we do with clients is we manage their abilities to invest in different vintages. We don't want all the money to go in over a one or a two year period of time that we're dedicating to the space. What we want to do is we want to have a client dedicate some money into, you know, let's say we're in 2022 right now. We want them to be able to dedicate money in 22, 23, and 24 to a fund. And then we want them to be able to dedicate money in 24 and 25 and 26. Because you want to space out and allocate um, their commitments to these funds in a thoughtful manner. Because what you don't want to do is be in a position that, you know, let's take go back to 2008 and the global financial crisis, where you want to go back to 2000 uh, and the dot-com blow-up. If you're only allocation to private equity started in 1999 or 2000 uh, or 2006 and 2007. Well, essentially, almost every company you invested in at that point in time struggled. That's the reality. But if you dedicated a little bit in 2000 and then you did a little bit more again in 2000 and 2002 and then 2005, what happens is it's, it's almost like dollar cost averaging. Um, and so that what happens is, is, you know, yeah, sometimes you'll invest in the peak. Sometimes you'll invest in the valley. Sometimes you'll start investing in the middle, but you're kind of balancing yourself out. And it's very, very important not to uh, jump in with both feet in terms of private equity, because we want to make sure you're balanced as far um, as kind of vintage is concerned. So 
in any vintage, you're going to have some risk and you're going to have some zeros. Given the economy, given market cycles, if things go haywire, there might be a higher propensity in one vintage to have more zeros, but there could also be a higher propensity in another vintage to have no zeros because everything could be rosy and good. And so that's one of the reasons why we always want to right-size clients' investments into their private equity funds, because we want to make sure that they're capturing the good cycles, the mediocre cycles, and maybe even the bad cycles, and of course, the great cycles. So that's very important to understand. And so venture, when we're looking at venture capital, um, as far as a, a category is concerned, you're a little bit earlier on on, on the stage side. But again, um, you have an idea. It's it's valid. It's working. And you probably have some good prospects for success. And when you do hit those again, you're going to hit them pretty strong. And so you're going to have your zeros, but you're also going to have some really big winners. All right. So after venture, we've got seed, venture, growth is next. Yeah. So growth happens to be kind of to us the sweet spot of private equity investing because you've removed a lot of the risk that you're going to have. Not all of the risk. So let's get one thing straight. Um, you're never going to remove all of the risk. But in growth capital, I mean, particularly the funds and the way we've been able to do it, growth capital kind of, ca- I hate to say capitalizes, but it capitalizes on the success of a company. And the way these companies work, and this is where I'll get a little granular, okay? But once we sort of get into um, the success of a company, you start to see these the, these different stages, you know, of growth capital. But sometimes growth capital investing could be in between what they call different series of investments. Could be a series A, they're raising money. Series B, they raise money. Series C, they raise money. Series D. And they're raising money all along the way once they sort of get into these mature kind of private companies. And they're raising money to help clearly fund growth. But at each time you create a new series, you strike a a valuation, you raise money, and all the investors traditionally get diluted by new investors. Mm-hmm. And so private companies, private equity investors are very sensitive to their ownership stakes and future dilution. And the game is really simple. Grow the company as much as you can, get diluted as little as possible. Very simple. And so growth capital, the way we've been able to access this area is, is with managers in general who kind of fly a little bit under the radar And a lot of times they'll provide investment money in between rounds, for example. And the the benefit of being in between a round is you you don't have a major valuation change. Um, You don't need large amounts of money. You're trying to get a company over the hump to maybe that next big large valuation and that large capital raise. And so you kind of sneak in there in the middle of of a a series um, and and really kind of capitalize on your Ability and your desire in that area to sometimes write smaller checks, not necessarily take an active role. Because by the time you get into growth capital, there's generally speaking, um, anchor tenants in there who have committed large capitals of money. They're the ones who are sort of in control. And so you have to kind of be willing to go along with along for the ride. And we're very happy going along for the ride as long as you know who's driving. 
And so <laughs> understanding, you know, the relationships involved in making sure um, that you're, you know, with your good drivers, um, it, it becomes a very, uh, a, a good way to invest. And again, as you, as you do that and you understand who the drivers are, you also understand the likelihood of, of less defaults because you're dealing with top tier private equity firms whose miss ratio is, you know, not as, as high as others. They also have a lot of capital to support their investments and they have the ability to go out and then bring in other investors who want to invest alongside of them should they ever you know need some help so again it's very important to understand who you're with and 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 what their objectives are so they may have a series a b c d whatever you can still invest in between those how do the the investors who've gone in on the series see you do they see you as as somebody who's diluting them further no 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 generally they're seeing they they like those investors because they Again, they're not looking for control um, in that in, in that example that I'm providing. Um, and they're helping you get to a next higher level valuation. And this is probably a little granular for those who are listening, but it helps them get to a you're helping them get to a higher valuation where they're going to raise more money. And if you are selling or raising money off of a higher valuation, you're going to get diluted less. Previous owners will get diluted less because the amount of money you're you're raising in comparison to the current value is higher. So growth capital is looked at favorably because they're coming in with a small amount of money, but helping you achieve greater heights in terms of overall valuations for that next raise. So they're looked at on a, on a very favorable aspect. Um, and so when we take a look at where we are as far as returns are concerned, we happen to really like that spot. It's a, it's a good sweet spot for as far as what we're concerned. Again, you're not getting the returns of seed capital or venture capital. You're going to hit some really good good home runs. Now, you'll see plenty of returns in these portfolios, five to 10 times uh, earnings. Um, you know, relative to what the investments are. So uh, that's absolutely positively nothing to sneeze at. But I think growth capital generally, um, on average, you're probably looking into the, you know, the high teens to low 20s IRRs uh, for your top quartile managers versus venture capital, you're going to be looking upwards in the 30s. So it's, it, there's a distinct difference between the two categories. But again, they come with definitely higher risk levels. Exactly. So. Yeah. So that's that. Um, and then there's late stage. Um, late stage is, and and the late stage is actually really important because a lot of times the late stage is what helps these companies. And we talked about this in the last podcast, helps these companies stay private for longer. Okay. So in many instances, as we talked about over the last, you know, 10 or 20 years, companies have been staying private longer. They're no longer coming public at valuations of 200 or 300 or four or 500 million dollars or even a billion. Um, you know, your, your top tier private equity companies are coming public 20, 30, 40 billion dollars, 100 billion dollar valuations, uh, and the like. So they're staying private longer, which is giving a greater, um, giving a greater return to the initial investors. And also in the right circumstances, a lot of investors want to get into a company pre-IPO before it comes public, because at a minimum, they think they'll at least get a good pop. And so they don't mind coming in at a late stage. And what these late stage investors do uh, again, depending upon how late you are, but a lot of times they will take out um, sometimes early investors Okay, remember, we talked about seed capital, venture right. capital. They're looking for really big, large returns. Um, 
you know, once they get an exceptionally large return, they don't have to stay till the end of the party. Okay. They don't have to squeeze um, every nickel out of the investment because candidly holding on to that money for six months or a year where they might get a 10% more return on that money, not really meaningful for them. They can dedicate that those funds uh, to other places in order to make a much greater return. And so late stage comes in, they help bring those people out. Many times they're also maybe, you know, able to provide some liquidity for um, you know, executives in the firm who, who've been there for a long time and want to take some money off the table. And so those people come in uh, and they also help keep that company flowing. Um, again, a lot of these companies, particularly in the technology sector, these companies don't make money. Okay. That's just a harsh reality. Um, they have a lot of revenue, but they're investing that money back into the business and trying to help it grow. And, you know, for everybody who remembers or, or the, the story about Amazon, uh, Amazon for eons was just losing money hand over fist. And they'd always say, well, if Amazon wanted to make money, they could tweak one thing or two things and they'll start making a ton of money. Um, but Jeff Bezos didn't want to do that. He wanted to keep growing it and growing it, uh, creating a bigger platform getting more revenue, getting more customers. And he knew eventually when the time was right, he'd turn on the profits, the spigot. And guess what? He was right. Okay. <laughs> he was. So, so, and, and he's not alone. Okay. Um, and, and look, let's also remember if you are growing your revenue and you're a company hiding behind the fact that, Hey, we're growing revenue. Don't worry about profits. If the whole world isn't worrying about profits, then you can just keep on selling. You don't have to worry about what it costs to sell. Eventually, everything comes home to roost. And that's also one of the reasons why we like private markets, because generally speaking, investors don't super care and the markets don't super care about whether or not you're making money. They want to see you know, and particularly with companies who have subscription revenues, they want to see, you know, basically annual recurring revenue, ARR. Okay. And if you have a lot of ARR, that's everybody likes that. Okay. If you're not making money, that's okay. If you have a lot of recurring revenue, the assumption is one day you'll get your costs under control. Um, you won't have to reinvest so much in the future and you will turn on that uh, profit spigot like Amazon did. Now, the truth of the matter is, is that occurs once you're public. Mm -hmm. And that's when the rubber meets the road. Can you turn that profit spigot on? If and you can keep, keep it on. Correct. And if you can, great. Then that publicly traded stock goes higher. If you can't, that publicly traded stock goes lower. But you know who doesn't care about that publicly traded stock going lower? All of your investors who were in there from the beginning, who capitalized on the growth of the company and probably got out of most of their shares within six months of that company going public. Okay. So again, that's why we like private equity. You're able to capitalize on the growth and the future prospects of the company without necessarily being tied to the success, success of it in the future. And, you know, again, as I said, that those late stage investors come in and uh, they're looking to capitalize a little bit on that. Now, keep in mind, those late stage investors, it's very, very, very little risk. Okay. You are really at that point in time, long, well-established companies, true roadmap to going public um and your downside risk is, is is really not a lot your downside risk at that point in time becomes time and potentially what's going on in the markets mm -hmm. because you can invest in a company with the anticipation that it goes public in six months 
And then the world changes because the economy goes into a little bit of a tailspin. You know, we're seeing it at the end of 2022. Um, and we've seen a lot of, you know, you see late stage investors that went in, in, you know, the, even whether it be the summer of this year, the summer of 2022, early in 2022, um, who anticipated companies being able to go public at some point in time this year. And now all of a sudden, the market is just not receptive to new, um, to new companies coming public and it's not kind of the opportune time and now all of a sudden these late stage investors are sitting there holding on to private investments they thought they were going to hold on to for six months for a year and now it becomes two or three years right so it's not that they won't make money or they won't lose too much money uh relative to maybe what goes on in publicly traded markets but their liquidity timeline changed dramatically and that's more the risk that you take on that late stage investing is because you need your exit to generally be this company's going public or strategic acquisition, but that's kind of there. A quick question, Stephen. You're talking about investors, investors. Who are these investors? It's obviously not the, the public mom and pop investor who goes and buys the shares. Who are these investors that can get in at this stage? Well, we fortunately have the ability to access some of the best, what we deem to be the best. And again, um, it's always up for discussion, but I think metrics uh, and performance metrics are very comfortable telling people who the best is. And you look at rankings of private equity firms. And so what we generally look to do is access some of the top private equity firms who are the ones who are making the investments in these particular companies. So yes, individuals can't go out and, and buy $5,000 of some private company like they could if they wanted to go buy Apple. Um, it just doesn't really work that way. So you need to have relationships with some of the top tier private equity firms, and they're the ones who get access to the best private companies. And then all of these private equity firms that are out there, they all have their own niche. Okay. Mm-hmm. There's great private equity firms that are in the seed capital business and the venture capital business and the growth capital business and the late stage. There's one who's some who focus on technology. There's some who focus on healthcare. There's what they're, they're ones who focused on industrial consumer goods. I, I mean, you name it, there's private equity firms for them. And there's some funds who do a little bit of everything. Um, I think most of the more successful private equity firms usually at this point in time have have a specialty that they target um and and that's kind of what we're seeing and clearly anything in technology is usually um you know where you're looking at but again there's a lot of new businesses in the industrial space that are growing in the logistics space cybersecurity right now is tremendous software is always big um so it's again it's just about finding the right firms that you can get access to and the truth is you can't get access to all of them but then sometimes you find the right growth capital manager who might have the relationships. They're raising smaller funds. They piggyback with the bigger guys, but that's just because they're writing small checks and you barely know that they're there. They just are trying to get you over the hump somewhere. So again, it, it's this is one of the reasons why we talk to clients and prospects about understanding who's doing what and how they're doing it and why they're doing it. And this is not a space that just anybody can go do. It really isn't. I mean, we've built these relationships up with these firms um, and these providers for 20 plus years. 
And so we understand who you want to work with and who provides what value. And the truth of the matter is, uh, I think I, like I said it in our last podcast, um, don't look at an index because the problem with looking at an index, it's got the top tier guys, top quartile, as we would say, and the bottom quartile. And just because you're getting access to a private equity manager doesn't necessarily mean that's the right one. Mm-hmm. And the indexes will show you that. So the key is making sure you have consistent access to who top quartile managers are. And look, top quartile managers don't always have top quartile funds. Okay. That's for sure. They have funds that you know, might be second quartile, but it's very rare that a top quartile manager who's been really good for a really long time is going to be in the bottom. It's very right. rare. There's going to be varying degrees of success when it comes to that. And so, again, we we think we've developed um, you know a, a unique ability uh, to access a lot of these managers. Um, can't access everybody, that's for sure. But we don't need to access everybody. We're we're not the California State Teachers Pension Fund. <laughs> we're not looking. We're not looking to dedicate you know fifty million dollars a year or hundred or five hundred million dollars a year to private equity funds. Okay, our, our needs are much smaller, and because of that, we're able to develop the relationships and access these funds in the appropriate manner. Oh, great discussion, Stephen! Wonderful. Now, what did you want to tackle in the next podcast? So, like we talked about in the previous podcast, there's generally two ways to access the private markets, and one is on the equity side of things. I think we clearly covered that one today. Uh, and next time, we'll be talking about private credit. Not as sexy as private equity, that's for sure. Returns are definitely going to be a lot lower. But as we look at the world that we live in right now, and even though interest rates are higher, um, we can always look for better ways to make returns without taking on too much risk. So we're going to take a, a look at the private credit market um, and, and educate, educate people on that. And how can people reach you? As always, best place is our website, HightowerBethesda.com. Uh, you can reach out to us uh, from there directly, and we really welcome everybody to take a look at the podcasts and the blogs and the newsletters that we have on the website. I think you can really learn a lot about us and our philosophy, uh, and if it's something that you're interested in, please feel free to reach out. All right, and all you listeners, follow this podcast to get access to every episode. You'll know when they're out and they're ready for you, and please share with others. Thanks for being with us. Thank you for listening to Approach Investing Differently. Don't forget to follow the podcast to be notified whenever a new episode is released. Hightower Bethesda is a group comprised of investment professionals registered with Hightower Advisors, LLC, an SEC registered investment advisor. Some investment professionals may also be registered with Hightower Securities, LLC, member FINRA and SIPC. Advisory services are offered through Hightower Advisors, LLC. Securities are offered through Hightower Securities, LLC. This is not an offer to buy or sell securities. No investment process is free of risk, and there is no guarantee that the investment process or the investment opportunities referenced herein will be profitable. Past performance is neither indicative nor a guarantee of future results. The investment opportunities referenced herein may not be suitable for all investors. 
All data or other information referenced herein is from sources believed to be reliable. Any opinions, news, research, analysis, prices, or other data or information contained in this presentation is provided as general market commentary and does not constitute investment advice. Hightower Bethesda and Hightower Advisors LLC or any of its affiliates make no representations or warranties expressed or implied as to the accuracy or completeness of the information or for statements or errors or omissions or results obtained from the use of this information. Hightower Bethesda and Hightower Advisors LLC assume no liability for any action made or taken in reliance on or relating in any way to this information. The information is provided as of the date referenced in the document. Such data and other information are subject to change without notice. This document was created for informational purposes only. The opinions expressed herein are solely those of the authors and do not represent those of Hightower Advisors LLC or any of its affiliates.